A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. In November 2004, after 25 years as a filmmaker, I began researching the Bogle Chandler case for a possible television documentary. I was interested in exploring the case's extraordinary impact on the media, policing and society. But I had no ambition of finding a solution to the mystery. I wrote to the New South Wales Police requesting access to the case files. On my return from the post office, I realised there was little motivation for the police to cooperate. But 20 minutes later, I had a thought. There'd been a witness to the deaths of Dr Bogle and Mrs Chandler that I was certain had not been investigated. The river itself. Over the previous 20 years, I'd read almost everything in the public domain about the case. But there had been no mention of the most obvious feature of the crime scene, the mangroves, which line the Lane Cove River from its mouth at Fig Tree to the weir just past Fuller's Bridge. I recalled my school science class when we learned that mangroves produce gases, including hydrogen sulphide, a colourless gas that reeks of rotten eggs. Researching the gas anew, I discovered that most victims of hydrogen sulphide poisoning die in confined spaces such as sewers and industrial situations. But because hydrogen sulphide is 20% heavier than air, it can also linger close to the ground in open spaces if the air is cool and still. Without mentioning the case, I emailed two mangrove specialists and asked whether if someone was found dead in a mangrove area, could hydrogen sulphide have caused the death? Both agreed it was possible. If the air was still, it was early in the morning, and the victim was in a depression. One of the scientists recalled the story of two men who were digging a sewer line in mangroves on a Pacific atoll. They had disturbed a pocket of gas and were asphyxiated. There are aspects of both opinions that fitted the Bogle Chandler case, but I wasn't convinced that in normal circumstances mangroves were killers, even if a person was to lie down amongst them. I was soon able to rule out my mangrove theory when I learned about the fate of the Lane Cove River itself. Well, it's a very interesting history, of course, and I think it's one that's forgotten today. I contacted environmental historian Lynn McLaughlin, who had researched the river's past. In particular periods, it was the main way people got in and out of the area, both for industry and produce. It was a major form of transport for the timber first, and then for the produce from the orchards. There were a few industries that set up along the river, again because of the transport. Perhaps the most delightful use of the river was for picnicking. There was a period in the 20s, 30s, even earlier, turn of the century, 1900, 
when the river was a major site for picnicking and people would hire rowboats and row up the river. And the stories and accounts that from the, um, the period of the state of the river at that time are just wonderful. I mean, they talked about it as a veritable fairyland. The wildflowers were magnificent. There were people who made a living along the river from selling strawberries and cream or hot water to the picnickers as they came along. And the pictures painted in the newspaper accounts at the time of a trip up the Lane Cove River were really quite delightful. But by the mid-1930s, the industrialised lower half of the river began to fall out of favour. In 1937, a Rockdale alderman warned the Boy Scouts Association that the Lane Cove River was a dangerous place to hold its upcoming jamboree. The river is not healthy, he told the newspaper. A child's death has been attributed to the condition of the river, and there are many dead dogs and cats in it. The Scout Jamboree went ahead regardless and resulted in two fatalities. The first, a teenager who collapsed and died in a portable kitchen beside the river. Two days later, another Scout complained of feeling ill just before entering the water for a swim. His body was later found floating downstream. Following the second death, the river was closed to swimmers. The following year, in 1938, a weir was constructed near Fuller's Bridge. The upper reaches became a designated national park and the lower industrial section was abandoned for recreation. But the weir only exacerbated the problem. The local residents, whose houses backed onto the river, complained of nausea, shortness of breath and strange illnesses. And the paint on their houses was peeling and their taps were blackening. These problems were associated with a terrible odour, which engulfed the entire neighbourhood. What happened was there were outbreaks of a dinoflagellate organism called glenodium, which is a red algae. When those outbreaks came, they were accompanied by a major pollution incident in the river. There were 13 of them from 1938 through to 1948, which have been described as blanketing of the area around the river, this is downstream of the weir, with massive rotten egg gas smell, which was most unpleasant of course. This pollutant was sufficient to blacken paintwork because it was reacting with the old lead paintwork um, on people's houses, so it blackened paintwork. And the river itself went through these amazing phases of change where first the river would be of sort of a dark red chocolate brown colour, I think described as being like thin tomato soup. It would then turn white, then black, green, then black. These amazing rainbow of colours before it came back to normal. And this might take a period of about three months. Lynn McLaughlin suggests that I search out a file at the Lane Cove Library, which contained correspondence between furious Riverside residents and the local council. Between May and October in 1939, the residents complained that the river was discoloured and smelt of rotten eggs. In July 1941, another resident wrote of a serious pollution event on the river. Green weed was in abundance and fish and eels were destroyed. The stench lasted several months. 
Another resident observed that an abnormal smell emanates from the river during the small hours of the morning. The odour reappeared year after year throughout the 1940s and lingered for months at a time, and most of the complainants lived in the vicinity of where Dr Bogle and Mrs Chandler had died. In September 1947, the Sun newspaper reported on a major catastrophic event close to Fuller's Bridge. A heavy smell of rotten eggs has been hanging over the district for weeks. The right town clerk said today that he had driven over the bridge in the smell with something awful. One resident interviewed today said the water is sometimes full of dead bodies of brim, mullet and eels. Brim are not usually found this high up the river. They apparently swim ahead of the muck trying to escape it, but are finally caught in it and killed just below the weir. Two months later, in November 1947, the putrid stench was still blanketing the neighbourhood and the gas was impacting on human health. A local resident wrote to the council complaining that the overpowering fumes from the river had caused vomiting. In February 1949, another resident complained to the council. The gas was so offensive and compromised so large a part of the atmosphere that breathing was difficult and almost painful. Although the ratepayer may be prepared to suffer if the paintwork of his house is damaged, he is likely to take unusually strong action if he is forced to witness his child gasping for breath. Langhove Council and Willoughby Council and Ride Council and the Health Commission developed very thick files of complaints from local people. They obviously wrote to anyone they could trying to get something done about it. Finally, following 10 years of complaints, the Langhove Town Hall wrote to the New South Wales State Government. The stench is causing sickness amongst the residents. Unless some solution to the trouble can be found and a remedial measures taken, a valuable residential section of the municipality will be absolutely ruined. The problem was now so serious that the council warned the government that the entire residential area beside the river might have to be evacuated unless something was done. There was a very obnoxious smell and it penetrated for a long way. With the issue now a political one, the Maritime Services Board dispatched their leading scientist, Morris Fry, to the Lanco River. I didn't feel too good when I was actually working on the river because the concentration of hydrogen sulphide was quite high. One would not have chosen to be out on the river. It was only a matter of necessity. Morris Fry spent a year taking water and mud samples at 19 locations along the river. On one occasion, he witnessed a dramatic event. The intensity of the hydrogen sulphide increases and uh, eventually the production is so violent on the bottom that the bottom explodes. The reason for the word explodes is that on the surface you could see the mud uh, on the surface water and it was in motion, it was kind of <laughs> going round and round and it contained uh, bottom worms 
and anaerobic organisms, and it was quite black. Maurice Fry found that the culprit was a flour and starch mill downstream that had been pumping sulphurous waste into the river since the 1890s, as much as a billion litres a year. The construction of the weir exacerbated the problem and prevented the natural flushing of the river. The incoming tide would transport the sulphur upstream towards the weir and deposit the waste on the way. The intensity hydrogen sulphide evolution was greater towards the weir than it was further downstream. Fry deduced that an exponential increase in the number of sulphur-loving microorganisms called dinoflagellates tipped the balance. They were a trigger that set off an evolution of hydrogen sulphide which led to the major pollution episodes. These events had catastrophic consequences for both the nearby neighbourhoods and the life in the river. There was one particular instance in the 1950s of 500,000 eels and 5 million fish all struggling for air in the river towards the weir and it resulted in a massive kill of those eels and fish. Maurice Fry's findings did have an impact. The waste from the flour and starch mill was diverted into the sewer line that ran across the bed of the river. Unfortunately, every time it rained, the sewer pipe's pressure valve opened and released the sulphurous waste and raw sewage into the river. Throughout the 1960s and for decades to come, the river remained an environmental disaster. The area of the river with the highest saturation of hydrogen sulphide in the bottom muds was within 400 metres of the weir, to a maximum depth of half a metre. This was the area where Dr Bogle and Mrs Chandler met their fate. I don't think there's any doubt that they couldn't have chosen a worse spot to be. It's muddy, it would have been cold and damp being in the early hours of the morning. It was in a stretch of the river which had the greatest remnant impact from the sulphur that had been going into the river over 50, 60 years from this cornflower factory and which caused major pollution incidents in the river with accompanying hydrogen sulphide gas. So I guess if you knew everything about the state of the river and about the pollution that it was giving off, I guess there's no way you'd go there. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. In response to my letter to the police, I received a call from the head of the Unsolved Crimes Unit. He said that the case was still open and that access to the files wasn't possible. I told him what I'd discovered about the location where the victims had died. A week later came a breakthrough. The Deputy Commissioner of Police had agreed to give me access 
to the scientific investigation files to continue my research. There was a trove of information, including the autopsy reports, a list of poisons considered, and details of the case never made public. There was no mention of hydrogen sulphide as a possible cause of death, but a 1971 review of the case did mention the gas, but discounted it without any reference to the river's recent history. In 1963, the police had sought advice from the president of the British Association of Forensic Medicine, Dr. Francis Camps. In his 30 years as a pathologist, he'd carried out more than 10,000 post-mortems. On reading the case notes, he concluded that because the victims had been struck down at the same time, a gas was the probable cause. They died from a gas. I agree with that. I agree that with the uh, statement that these two people died from a gas, an inhaled gas, as opposed to a pill or something like that. Because an inhaled gas tends to act very quickly, or a pill or something else does not. In 2005, I contacted Tom Milby, MD, a world-renowned expert on hydrogen sulfide poisoning who resided in California. Over the previous 40 years, Tom had investigated more than 100 cases of hydrogen sulfide poisoning, many of them fatal. I read those two autopsy reports carefully, and I saw nothing in either report that would, in my opinion, exclude the possibility of hydrogen sulfide as being the, the culprit that killed them. Many gases are deadly, especially cyanide gas, which has been used in executions. But in Tom Milby's opinion, hydrogen sulfide gas is a master of deceit. Hydrogen sulfide gas is potentially deadly, almost as deadly as cyanide gas. Most of us can pick up the smell of hydrogen sulfide at extremely low concentrations of way less than a part per million. That's annoying because it doesn't smell very good. But it doesn't take any serious toxicity on until it reaches about 50 to 100 parts per million. Once it gets up to about 150 parts per million, uh, which is not very high, almost immediately it anesthetizes the nerves we have on our nose that are responsible for picking up odors. So you don't smell it. But if it gets much higher than that, and if it gets into the two or 300 parts per million, then it begins to take an effect on the brain. Uh, at about 750 parts per million, you're in danger of dying within a few minutes, and most people do. If it's much higher than that, the sledgehammer effect comes and you fall down completely. Tom Milby was so intrigued by the case, he flew to Sydney at his own expense. I took him to the riverside location where the victims had died. We located the exact spot where Dr. Bogle's body was found on the riverbank. We then ventured down to the exposed riverbed, where a scientific detective had photographed items of the victim's clothing, shoes, underpants, and a belt. The fact that the clothing was laid out in an orderly way would indicate to me that they were laying right there in that area. A soft carpet of she-oak needles covered the ground, and a tangle of mangroves provided privacy and shelter from the elements. This meter-deep, bowl-shaped depression 
is the area where the couple lay down. And on the other side of me is a heavy growth of mangrove plants. Hydrogen sulfide gas, which is slightly heavier than air, can accumulate in areas like this. And there's a long record of it doing so in other parts of the world. And in the early morning, before the sun comes up, before the breezes begin, the hydrogen sulfide would sit silently and invisibly in this bowl. And this would be the last place in the world where anyone would want to lie down in the ground. Marks on the mudflats and the riverbank wall suggest they both urgently scrambled away from the location as if desperate for air. I think that they would have realized pretty fast that something was wrong. They would become disoriented. They would act like try to get out and stumble backwards and they can do all sorts of things that you can conceive of someone who is, is semi-unconscious actually. If the concentration is high enough of hydrogen sulfide in the atmosphere, when it gets into the blood, it immediately shuts off the ability of the brain to use oxygen, even though there's plenty of oxygen around. It's like putting a plastic bag over the brain. A gas such as hydrogen sulfide attacks the brain and it does it quickly and it does it without leaving much evidence that it was there. Most deaths caused by hydrogen sulfide poisoning occur in confined spaces in industrial situations. But fatalities also occur in the open, on farms and in natural environments, such as volcanic areas and the mud pools at Rotorua in New Zealand. Because the human nose can't detect high concentrations of the gas, it can also overcome rescuers, and they don't often realise its presence until they walk away from the source. But in some locations, the gas quickly dissipates and leaves investigators scratching their heads. To make a diagnosis of hydrogen sulfide poisoning is usually easy because usually you know what it, where it came from. That it came from somebody who was exposed in an occupational setting and two or three other people who were around were exposed to it as well. But once in a while when you come upon a case in an unusual situation, then sometimes it's very difficult to diagnose except through uh, circumstantial evidence. At autopsy, hydrogen sulfide poisoning is almost impossible to identify, but there are exceptions. Tom Milby sent me an intriguing case report of a 34-year-old man who died in a drainage ditch outside a processing plant that produced fertiliser. The pathologist made an unexpected discovery when he dissected the victim's brain. The brain was actually purplish and it was a known case of hydrogen sulfide poisoning. A case generally known as the purple brain death. When I first interviewed the chief toxicologist, Vivian Marnie, he admitted to finding something odd about the blood of both victims. Something he had never seen before. When the two bloods came in with the rest of the organs, I immediately looked at them and I said to myself, well, they've got a purple coloration. I always thought that was significant, that both bloods had a purplish coloration. Well, that to me indicated that they'd both died the same way. I couldn't see that. It was too much of a coincidence, even if they had different blood groups. Viv Marnie had seen blood of various hues, 
and these were often related to a gas. I've done a lot of cases of where bloods have been discoloured, but I've always had prior knowledge of what's caused that coloration. For instance, carbon monoxide poisoning, that's probably the most common that I've handled. Deaths from carbon monoxide poisoning are often related to motor vehicle exhaust or home heating and cooking equipment, and fatalities are easily identifiable. Carbon monoxide turns the blood a cherry red because it forms a compound with the haemoglobin. But in his decade-long experience, Vivian Marnie had never seen a purple discoloration of the blood. I gave a lot of time after hours at the Mitchell Library. I, I wasn't successful in uh, pinpointing anything. I tried to even develop a method to analyse blood because there was no method available at the time. The purple blood was an extraordinary revelation and possibly the missing piece of evidence that could finally resolve the Bogle-Chandler case. Four decades on, do you think that that strange coloration could have a significance? It must be significant because it's, if it's happened due to something that's either being consumed and hardly absorbed, I mean, if you see something that's not usual there and you find two people dead on the banks of a river, it's just not natural. And, and if it's not natural, it's only logical that it could be responsible for their deaths. The toxicologist who spent 15 months on the case searching in the tissue samples for any poison and he found nothing. The only indication that there was something strange was the colour of the blood in both victims was a purple coloration. What does that say to you? Hydrogen sulfide does cause a greenish to purplish colour to the blood occasionally and to the tissues sometimes, not all the time. But if an autopsy surgeon finds that the blood is purplish and finds no other cause for death, that is extremely strong evidence for hydrogen sulfide being the lethal gas that caused the death. I don't know of any other substance that produces a purplish color in the blood. It is a fingerprint that identifies hydrogen sulfide. But what evidence is there that hydrogen sulfide was present in the atmosphere on New Year's morning, 1963? There were numerous cars parked beside the river at 4.30am when the victims arrived. Many of the occupants contacted the police, including Lindsay Mitchell. I had been to a New Year's Eve party and when the party ended, I decided to go to Manly and sleep on the beach and spend New Year's Day at Manly. By the time we got to the Lane Cove River, we were too tired to continue. We were falling asleep, so we turned in and parked near the Fuller's Bridge on the banks of the Lane Cove River. I slept in the back seat of the car and at first light I woke up and I was very thirsty. I saw the river and I thought, well, I don't know whether it's salt water or fresh water, but I'll go down and have a look, see if I can get a drink. As I approached the river bank, I noticed that the river was heavily polluted. It stank, the water absolutely stank, it was stagnant, it was putrid, and there were dead fish floating belly up on the surface of the water. 
and I thought, there's no way I'm drinking that water. So I turned around and went back to the car. It was not the smell of it riding animal carcass. I went to Rotorua in New Zealand one time and it reminded me of that sulphur smell, a similar smell to those smart pools in Rotorua. Later that day, Derek Foster and his family stopped at the Lane Cove River. On New Year's Day 1963, my brother-in-law, Mick Dominic, and his wife, June, and, and their two children came to visit us. In the late afternoon, we decided to go to Chatswood to get a Chinese meal for dinner. Got into the car and uh, we, we took the dog with us. The dog uh, was in the back. And when we got to Fuller's Bridge, we had heard about the bodies being found on the news. And we, uh, there wasn't much activity, but there was a policeman guarding the path that led to the golf course. So we got out of the car and walked to the bridge to have a look around. And uh, the dog, jumped out of the car and ran into the bush. And uh, after a few minutes, there wasn't any activity, so we decided to resume our journey. We got back in the car, I whistled the dog, and he came up the river bank from behind the policeman and ran towards the car, across the road, and when he got in the car, we could not stand the smell. It's like 50,000 rotten eggs. And I held the dog all the way to Chatsford and all the way home. Uh, I hosed the dog off, I gave him a bath, and Mick, tried to clean his car out and he was sort of a bit furious about it and it was a family joke for many years and that's how I remember it so clearly. I personally have gone through the thought process of saying well what else could it be and I haven't been able to find anything that is even worth thinking about. Tom Milby MD had 25 years experience in the fields of medical toxicology and forensic medicine and specialised in fatalities caused by toxic gases. Forty or fifty years ago, many rivers were considered nothing more than sewers, a way of getting rid of industrial waste. And of course, we know about exploding gases from other parts of the world. Gases that build up and all of a sudden reach a place where they explode. We see that rather commonly. And this is just a case where hydrogen sulfide was that gas. So I think the probabilities are extremely high that it was hydrogen sulfide gas, and this was just a very unfortunate pair, that they happened to be there at exactly the wrong time. Coming up in the final episode of Who Killed Dr. Bogle and Mrs. Chandler, a childhood secret helps identify the mystery person who covered the bodies. I thought it was time that I spoke up about evidence that I found when I was a child. We'd never told anyone. My mother was too frightened to go to the police. And a stunning confession details the last terrifying minutes in the lives of Dr. Bogle and Mrs. Chandler. I asked why she was up at that ungodly hour of the morning and walking around. Apparently she'd been having nightmares. She had witnessed uh, a rather strange event in Sydney at Lane Cove where two people uh, had done something very strange. And then she found out that they died. Make sure to catch Merchants of Menace, another Blackwattle true crime investigation. Michael could have been a television evangelist. He was suave and debonair. Frank was kind of like a 600-pound gorilla. You know, he sleeps where he wants to sleep. Shortly after Frank Nugent's death, I was told that there was a list in a ledger 
of names that 26 of those were drug dealers. There was uh, cards from William Colby of the CIA. The owner of a well-known bank rumored to have ties to the CIA and organized crime vanishes off the face of the earth. Tonight, it's where he turned up that has people around the world shaking their heads. Merchants of Menace is available on your favorite podcast app. Wow, what a story. Who Killed Dr. Bogle and Mrs. Chandler podcast series is produced by Black Bottle Films with the assistance of the National Film and Sound Archive of Australia. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.